In this short series, we've been considering the pressure we can feel in our day-to-day lives not to waste our lives. We're told, or so the story goes, that time is short. There is nothing more than the here and now, and that you don't want to make a waste of your life, so live it up while you can. But what we've seen with just a few of Christ's parables is that if we give into this pressure to live for the here and now, to live for this moment alone, to make the most of our lives by living for our own wants and desires, we will, in fact, have wasted our lives. We can reappropriate these words, though. Jesus doesn't want us to waste our lives, but it looks very different than the pressure from our culture. Christ doesn't want us to waste our lives living for ourselves and being self-absorbed. He doesn't want us to waste our lives living for anyone or anything other than him. But he knows how easy it is for us to give into this pressure, to give into a false vision of the good life, to give into the pressure to just make the most of this life just in case there is nothing around the bend of death. In this last sermon... We're going to look at a parable that stresses how important it is that we make a fundamental decision not to waste our lives. We must decide. We must decide not to waste our lives. And there is an uncomfortable intensity to this passage, isn't there? It asks a lot of us. It asks us to weigh the cost of discipleship. But here's the thing. If you do not weigh the cost of discipleship, you will waste your life. Your life will be wasted. So I invite you to open up your Bible to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 14. If you don't own a Bible, take one of our gray Bibles home with you. Everything's on the screen behind me. We read in the Gospel of Luke, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. We can be easily impressed by a crowd. If the Orpheum sells out, that says something to us. It says that this artist is worth our attention. It says that they are succeeding as an artist. If we're at a rally and hundreds of thousands of people come out, it says something to us. It says that there's enough unity around this cause that maybe changes around the bend. Maybe we really can make a difference with our singular voice. We look at a crowd and it impresses us. It says something significant. It gives us hope that we're on the way toward change. But as we see throughout the Gospels and as we see in this passage here, Jesus is not so easily impressed by a crowd. We're halfway through Luke's Gospel at this point. And the movement of Christ has been growing. And people are starting to know his name. And they're excited because they hear that he's opening uh, blind eyes. He's healing broken bodies. He's proclaiming truths about God with a strange and unusual authority. And he seems to be implying again and again that he really is the Messiah of Israel. And now, as a result of his growing reputation, a large crowd has started following him from town to town, from village to village, from city to city. And we would be inclined to say, well, this is a measure of his success. He should snap a photo and put it on Instagram and show that he really is important. We would be impressed by this crowd. It says that he's significant. It says change is around the bend. And yet Jesus is not so easily impressed. Jesus actually looks at the crowd and he stops and he faces the crowd and with hyperbolic force causes them to screech to a halt with words so weighty and significant they're worth reading again. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
Now, this would be enough to make you stop dead in your tracks. I suspect some of the people in the crowd, they heard this, they turned back home. And some of us, we might have been following Jesus for a bit, and we hear these words, and it is enough to make us question, what are we doing following this Jesus of Nazareth? This is a difficult saying. How are we supposed to make sense of this? This is too much to ask of someone. Let's try to make sense of what Jesus is doing before we make sense of what Jesus is saying. Let's make sense of what he's doing before we understand what he's saying. There's a story that circulates around academic circles about this great scholar who, wherever he went, he could fill a lecture hall, but especially at his own university. If he lectured, the hall was full and overflowing. And there was a student well-known among the faculty who was walking around the school and saying, I'm a student of this great scholar. And so in passing over a staff meeting, someone said, oh, I heard so-and-so is one of your students. And the great scholar stopped and said, he may have attended my lectures, but he is not one of my students. This passage is trying to draw the same point. You can attend the lectures, but that doesn't mean that the professor has taken you on as a student and is supervising your dissertation and is helping you learn all of his thought to make sure that you can represent him well in the world. There's a big difference. And Jesus is saying in the exact same way, there is a great difference between following a crowd, being interested in him, and being his disciple. There is a huge difference. Jesus doesn't want a crowd of followers. He wants a movement of disciples. You see, it's entirely possible to flirt with the stories about Jesus, to, to be enamored with his ethical instruction, or to find yourself in a crowd gathered around his teachings. It's possible to associate with yourself with Jesus in such a way, and yet to still hold him at arm's length. He's just lecturing at you. You haven't actually submitted to be his student. You haven't actually submitted to be his disciple. He isn't the Lord. You're still the Lord over your own life. It's a vast difference between being a follower and a disciple in this passage. Jesus wants every person in that crowd following him to know this. A decision has to be made. There's excitement. There's a crowd. It seems to be a growing movement. But what the crowd doesn't realize at this point in Luke's gospel is that Jesus' heart and mind and sight is fixed on Jerusalem. He's heading to a cross. That's where this is going. The crowd doesn't see it. The crowd's just interested in Israel's Messiah. The crowd thinks he might go there and establish some sort of political rule. They don't think he's the suffering servant about to die. And so Jesus looks at the crowd and he says, you need to stop. And consider what discipleship means. And you have to make a decision. But the way Jesus does this, it's so shocking, isn't it? You must hate your father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, even our own life. Now to a group of sinners, some of us are like, got it. I can hate those people. But as our many scholars point out, we, we can't take Christ's words here with cold and unimaginative literalness. It's not unusual for Jesus to use hyperbole. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. To draw out how dangerous sin is. He says, it's better that you gouge out an eye and cut off a hand than sin and face eternal separation from God. Now, it would be disastrous for you to gouge out an eye or cut off a hand. And there's stories of people doing this throughout the church's history. But it would be even more disastrous for you to miss the point of how important it is to understand the dangers of sin that Jesus says it would, in fact, be better to gouge out an eye and cut off your hand. So just because he's using hyperbole, hyperbole doesn't make the point less serious. It makes it more serious. 
Even so here. Even so here. Jesus is saying, if you miss what I'm saying here in these extremes, you will have missed a point of critical importance. You will fail to make a true decision about me. Now, it helps to remember when we read a passage like this, that this is the same Jesus who taught us to love our neighbors as ourselves. This is the same Jesus who taught us to love our enemies. This is the same Jesus that says the whole law can be summarized in loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so essentially, Jesus is saying we must love everything and everyone less than we love him. In fact, he's saying something much more radical. He's saying that our love for him should be so great and immeasurable that by way of comparison, all our earthly loves look like hatred. That's how great our love should be for him, that even our greatest love on earth pales in comparison. How do you get there? Let's idealize all these relationships. How am I supposed to love Jesus more than my parents who have made sacrifices for me and helped me become the person I am and who have given me all these opportunities in my life? How am I supposed to love Jesus more than that? How am I supposed to love Jesus more than my wife and that moment where we made vows together and this continual growing into oneness that has been good and beautiful? How am I supposed to love him more than that? How am I supposed to love him more than the joy of holding children for the first time? How am I supposed to love him more than the immense comfort and benefit of having brothers and sisters to journey through this life together? How do we love the Lord more than all of those things so that all of those things in comparison pale and look like hatred? How do we get there? How do you get there? As the psalm says, how do we love the Lord more than life itself? Of course, this isn't where Jesus stops. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus isn't being cute here. He's not saying slap on a necklace, wear your cross, get the t-shirt. It's fine if you do that, but that's not what he's talking about. He's not, a ta- he's not even talking about the occasional moment of self-denial where you sacrifice your own wants and desires for the sake of someone else. As good as that is, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about death. He's talking about so, something so vivid and horrific that all the original hearers would think of this image and it would cause their skin to crawl because this was vivid and real and they had seen people crucified and they knew that that was a terrible and shameful and humiliating end to life. And he's saying, if you want to follow me, consider where I'm going. Consider the end, that it might require death, it might even require martyrdom, it might require your humiliation and shame within this world. Count the cost. Who is worthy of making demands like this? If any one of you came and said, hey, I'm thinking of dating this person, but they said all of these things. You, you have to love me more than all these things. I said, it's a madman. Don't do it. Who's worthy of this? You see, that question gets us closer to the, the, the right question. Only the author and giver of all these good gifts. Only the person who actually created your parents and gave you parents. Only the person who actually invented marriage and gave you marriage. Only the person who's given you all these relationships, who's given your life, who's given you your very breath. Only that person could ask for this sort of love. 
Because the sort of love Jesus right now is describing is loving the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, beyond all of these things. How could he ask that unless he's God himself? And so we have to ask, who's worthy of making these sort of demands? And is Jesus worthy? Is he worthy? Of course, we wrestle, don't we? Is it even possible to make a decision and have certainty about who Jesus is? Can we make a decision? How can we know for certain? There's a lot of options out there. You know, there's the people who say, no, he's just a good man. Good teaching. Good teacher. Interesting stuff. Oh, he was an end times prophet, you know, an eschatological visionary. Oh, he, he was just an over-exaggeration of his disciples' imaginations. Or he was non-existent, but I don't really believe those people exist. But is he God? Is he God? Now, maybe you've been exposed to some of these opinions. Maybe you're weighing some of them still. Maybe you're still trying to figure out, is Jesus really who he said he is? Or maybe you've made that decision, but these are still rattling around in the back of your mind, and you find your decision uh, is, is like in the waters. It is just being moved to and fro, and you're struggling. How can I know for certain? How can I really decide? But here's what we have to realize about indecision. It's always a heart issue. And usually the culprit is fear. Usually it's because we're afraid of two things, one of two things. You're either afraid of being wrong or you're afraid of being right. You're afraid of being wrong. What if I'm wrong? What if I'm a fool? What if I sign up for this high cost of discipleship and I waste the one life I have and Paul joins in that chorus. He's like, if we're wrong about Jesus and the resurrection of the dead, you're right. We're to be pitied. You've wasted your life. We're afraid of that. We're afraid of being wrong. But we often don't talk about how we're afraid of being right. What if Jesus is God in the flesh? What if all of this is true? What if he actually can make these costly demands of our life? What if all of this is required of us? We're afraid of that. Because suddenly we have to lay down our lives. Suddenly we're no longer the center of our own little world. Suddenly someone else is calling the shots about reality. And no matter what, Jesus clearly believes you can make a decision. Because he asks of it. Jesus clearly believes there is enough witness and testimony and data for you to weigh and make a decision about who he is. Jesus isn't telling us to make up our minds about our own personal truth. He's not telling us to have our own take on spirituality and world religions. He is looking at every single one of us the same way he looked at his own disciples saying, who do you say that I am? And to not decide is a decision. To say, I can't decide, that is an answer. And Jesus confronts us then with a decision. Who do you say that I am? But before we make that decision, he wants us to count the cost. And he gives us two parables that help us count the cost. The first one begins in verse 28. Which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he had laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Uh, the tallest building between Jacksonville, Florida, and Orlando, Florida, if you care about Floridian geography, but the tallest building between those two cities is appropriately called the Majesty Building. There it stands in its 18 stories of glory between these two cities. 
So if you drive north from Jacksonville, south uh, down to Orlando, you're gonna see the Majesty Building. But here's the thing, over the past 17 years, it's remained unfinished. It's not occupied, no one's in the building, even the exterior isn't totally finished. And despite years and years of the, the building owner saying, oh, we're gonna finish it, we're gonna finish it, it hasn't finished. And so within Florida, I lived in Florida for a while, within Florida, this building has become a joke. It's called the I-4 eyesore. And a lot of people have started making fun of it. Uh, the Hurricane Irma came through in 2017 and someone tweeted this, dear Hurricane Irma, we offer you this as our sacrifice. You can have it. Just don't destroy anything else. Sincerely, Central Floridians. One person, and I'm very confident I could be friends with this person, <laughs> dressed up as the I-4 eyesore for Halloween. An unfinished building is an embarrassment and a joke. That's the point of this parable. An unfinished building is an embarrassment and it's a joke. If you can't afford to complete what you've started, it will be to your own embarrassment and shame. When it comes to discipleship, Jesus is saying, if you make a half-hearted decision about him, if you follow a little bit of time only to turn around at some point, as difficult as it is for us to hear this, he's saying, it'll be to your own shame and ridicule. If you make a decision to follow me only to turn around, it'll be to your shame. If you start to follow Jesus because you think having a little bit of religion and spirituality is good for your life, it's a nice little add-on. Just saying you haven't counted the cost. He is not an add-on. He's not something you just tack on to your life. He's not an app you just download. He's the Lord of the universe. He's not a reality you can compartmentalize or keep at bay. Which is why R.G. Karras uh, put it this way. Discipleship is not periodic volunteer work on one's own terms and one's convenience. You must count the cost. And consider what it means for your life to be reoriented under the authority of Jesus. Can you afford that cost? Have you counted the cost? Are you willing to accept the, stream, the extremes of his ethical instruction? Love your neighbor as yourself. Sounds good in theory. Until you're moved in beside someone who annoys you. Love your enemy as yourself. Oh, we love to post that on Facebook. But try living it up. Why don't you go live with your enemies for a season? How about his instruction about sexuality and marriage? Are you willing to conform to his teaching and clarity on that? What about the sacrificial generosity that Christ calls us to, not just a tenth of our money, but all of it, pouring out our pockets for his sake? Are you willing to conform to that? What about his teachings on forgiveness? To not just forgive once in a while, but 77 times 7. You see, if you listen to what he is telling us, he's saying your life is not your own. Your body is not your own. Your eyes are not your own. The way you see the world is not your own. You must decide if you're willing to give yourself over to me. You have to live by my life, which means putting to death the things you want to do. And my, your body is now my body, and I live in you, and you live in me. Jesus is saying, count the cost, because I'm not making any small demands. I'm not just asking for your leftovers. I'm not just asking for 10%. I'm asking for your whole person. He's inviting you to submit to his lordship. It's an invitation. It's a free invitation. He's saying this is what the costly relationship looks like. Then he tells another parable in verse 31. 
What king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. No, at first glance, it looks like he's just making the same points again. Count the cost, but it's a little bit different. In the first parable, Jesus is saying, count the cost. Can you afford to follow me? Can you afford what's required? But now we have to count the cost of whether we can refuse to follow him. What does it mean for a king to face a stronger and more superior king? When that king has double the army, double the resources, more power. Jesus says, of course, you send a delegation, you try to make peace. Jesus is saying, count the cost. Count the cost of facing me at the end of time. Count the cost of wasting your life in this world, living for yourself, chasing after your own desires, enjoying the sex and the drinking and the indulgence and the mountains and the vision of the good life. Count the cost of living for yourself as if I am not really the Lord of the universe. Count the cost and keep in mind, I am the king and you're going to face me and I weigh hearts impartially. I see the secrets of your hearts. I know your whole life and your whole life will be measured at the end of time. Count the cost of wasting your life in this world, maybe gaining the world, but forfeiting your soul. Can you afford that? Can you afford that? Jesus says, if you count the cost, hopefully you will see that you need to seek terms of peace. You need to seek grace. You need to seek help. You need to ask for forgiveness. And then he drives the point of both parables home in verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Unless you say goodbye to it all, you can't be my disciple. What a challenge to the crowd. What a challenge to us. But should we decide to become a disciple only to turn around? Or should we... Never become a disciple at all. Jesus says, here's the outcome. You'll become tasteless salt. You'll become tasteless salt. He goes on to say, salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no use of either for the soil or the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, I grew up in a home that didn't have a salt shaker. I kid you not. I never had salt growing up. Uh, and to give you context, I grew up in a home when my mom cooked chicken. I just assumed you needed two glasses of water because that's how dry chicken is. But I digress. My home, no salt. And so even at a restaurant, I never put salt on my meal. It never crossed my mind that you would ever add salt to anything. I didn't even know what its purpose really was. But then I moved to Orlando. And then I married Julia, who puts salt on salad. And I thought, huh, I should try this salt stuff. It's amazing. I love me some salt now. But here's the thing. I've grown in my appreciation of salt. I've come to see its essentialness for cooking good food, especially if you want Thanksgiving to actually be Thanksgiving. But I don't nearly value salt the way someone in the ancient world would. It's not like they could just hop down the street and buy some salt. This was a precious good. And it had a few functions in the ancient world, just like it does today. Seasoning, fertilizer, or as a preserver. And so when Jesus says, if salt lost its saltiness, he's saying if, it, if salt lost its essence, if it, if it lost its very being of what it's meant to be, what use is it? It's a waste. 
It's not fit for the table. It's not fit for the fridge. It's not even fit for the manure pile. Jesus wants us to consider the cost of following him and turning around or never deciding to commit to his path of discipleship at all. You'll become tasteless salt. You will lose the very essence of your humanness. You see, he is the Lord of all. He is the author and perfecter of life itself. Should you refuse the invitation to join him on the path to abundant life, you will become tasteless salt. Your humanness will slowly deteriorate to the point that you won't even serve a purpose for a pile of manure. This is what Christ is saying to us. Refuse me and lose your humanness. Again, Christ is speaking in these extremes to emphasize the seriousness of his point. The cost of discipleship is high, but not nearly as high as refusing to become his disciple. And in some sense, Jesus has now put us in a predicament. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we look at the cost of discipleship and we think, I don't know that I could give that up. He's asking a lot. I don't know if I'm honest about who I am, that I could really commit to this path of life. And then he's saying, but weigh the cost of not signing up. And we think, well, I don't want that. The walls are closing in on us and a decision has to be made. What do we do? Fortunately, C.S. Lewis is way more helpful than your pastor on this point. He has this helpful illustration that I just love. He says, when I was a child, I often got this two things, often And I knew if I went to my mother, she would do something about my pain. She'd give me some aspirin to help deaden the pain so I could sleep in the night. But I usually held off doing that until the pain was more than I could bear because I knew if I went to my mother, she wouldn't just give me the aspirin. In the morning, she'd take me to the dentist. And I knew that the dentist wouldn't just look at my tooth. They would fix my tooth. But when you give dentists access to your mouth, they don't just stop with the one tooth. They start tinkering with the other teeth. Give them an inch, they take a mile. Lewis says, this is how the Lord is with us. So often we join a crowd of people kind of looking at Jesus and we're intrigued in him. We come to him because there's a presenting issue in our life. We might throw up a prayer or we we want some spirituality in our life. We want some meaning, but we we come to him and, and we give him a presenting issue. But Jesus doesn't just want our presenting issues. He wants our whole being. He wants your whole soul. He wants your whole life. He doesn't just want to tinker with the parts of your life that are evidently broken. He wants to tinker with the fundamental problem that your soul is in disarray before the maker of the universe, that without his help, you will die and be separated from God for all of eternity. Jesus Christ wants to come into your life and restore your soul and give birth to your true humanness. And to do that, he needs reign over your whole life because you don't actually know what you need to be made whole. And that's the danger of surrendering your life to Jesus. You see, it sounds wild to us, but throughout the centuries, sometimes faith in Christ has divided families. Believing in Christ has put people at odds with mother and father or siblings. And somehow in the Lord's mystery, that is part of how he makes our souls whole, that pain. There's been times where Christ asks people to literally empty their bank accounts for his sake. And they accept that invitation because in his providence and knowledge, he knows that that process will make their souls whole. 
He's asked people to surrender relationships that aren't healthy. He's asked people to stay in marriages that are challenging. He has put us in situations where we have to give over control because he's Lord and he knows that he can use all of these things for restoring our humanness that has been tarnished and lost because of the fall and because of sin. But to do that, he wants our whole lives, not just parts of it. So it's costly. And so it comes back to a fundamental and essential question. Who is worthy of making these sort of demands? Of course, God is worthy. But he's also the God who counted the cost. Jesus enjoyed the love and, and fellowship of the Trinity for all eternity before the incarnation. And Jesus counted the cost of being God and yet emptying himself to become the form of man and going beyond that even to death on a cross. Christ counted the cost. We see that in the Garden of Gethsemane. He counted the cost of what he must do to love us and restore us into fellowship with the Father. We will never pay a cost greater than the cost Christ paid for us on the cross. So if you want to know if he's worthy of your love, if he's worthy of your affection, if he's worthy of this loyalty, if he's worthy of laying down your life and letting him have complete reign over everything, look at how he counted the cost. Look at how he counted the cost. And there you'll discover a Lord who is worthy. And I want to encourage you, if his demands sound more like demands rather than invitations, here's what we have to remember. Jesus is not right now describing entry into discipleship. This is not the entry price tag. It's a gift. Jesus Christ says, your sins can be forgiven for free should you believe in me. But he's not pulling any bait and switch. He's saying, if you place your faith in me, you're beginning a relationship and this is the cost of the relationship. This is who I am. This is how committed I am to you. This is how much I love you. I need all of you. But the entry price is free. And although the journey is costly, he promises to be with us every step of the way up that steep mountain of discipleship. And he promises that he will be the one to greet us there at the end. You never have to endure the cost of discipleship alone because Christ has endured the cost for you and walks with you no matter the cost in your life. You never walk alone. And no matter what we may leave behind, and there will be costs, and there will be pain sometimes in that, just a few paragraphs earlier, Jesus says, you're going to gain so much more of the resurrection of the dead. That you'll gain a hundredfold, a thousandfold more than anything you ever leave behind. In Christ, you always gain more than you lose. And it's because you gain Christ himself, the greatest treasure. The one who can make up all the heartache and pain of this world at the resurrection of the dead. And that's why St. Paul could say to the Philippians, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So you have to make a decision. Is Jesus worthy of any cost? You have to decide, will you waste your life living for this world and living by the story of our culture? Or will you waste your life in an earthly sense to gain your life in an eternal sense? Will you look foolish in the world's eyes, but because you've actually found abundant life in Christ's eyes? So my encouragement to you all is don't waste your life. 